We are going to, we wrapped up the series uh, previously of preaching, and, and for the summer, we're going to look at a new preaching series on the Beatitudes. And I trust that this will be enlightening to all of us, uh, something that might be kind of familiar. You might also already know where we're going to, uh, and you've read through them before, but if not, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to land, and uh, we're going to be there for pretty much the whole summer. And uh, look at the, each one of these. But uh, it's interesting, 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke words, words which contra contradicted many of the destructive expectations that had been placed on God's children. He came against those ideas and those expectations. And faith had become basically a, a show of, of person's virtues and achievements. Look what I've done. Look what, how, how good I am. And uh, misguided followers made huge donations in public to show their godliness and, and how much God had blessed them over others. It's like the offering plate was passed through and then you dropped in all the coins and let everybody hear all the coins going on in and of making sure that people saw how much you were giving. That's what, kind of what was going on in these days. Sacrifices were offered in a show of contriteness. Prayers were, were more rhetoric than petition. And teaching turned into nitpicking over how long tassels should be and how many times one should wash their hands on the Sabbath. Now, we've gotten to the hand-washing thing previously, of course, but as far as a, a spiritual connotation to it, people were trying to make sure that they were clean and, and how many times you need to do that and, and how long do those tassels, need, those prayer tassels and everything else need to be to show your godliness and everything else. So Jesus speaks to this mindset in Matthew's Gospel, in chapters 5 through 7, a, a portion of Scripture that's called the Sermon on the Mount. And because many believe that he shared these words with his followers while they were camped out on a mountainside next to the Sea of Galilee. And I considered actually that being our series for the summer, uh, Sermon on the Mount, but it became too much to fit in for the summer, and so I thought we'd just look at the Beatitudes in this section. The opening to this sermon, though, this passage that is called the Beatitudes, is the standard for life that Jesus taught to counteract the excessive display that had replaced true faith in God. He's coming against these people and letting them know this is what's important. This is what you need to focus on. And Jesus began His sermon with words that, again, seem to contradict each other. If you look through this uh, portion of Scripture here, you kind of can see that happening. And, but it's God's way of living usually, usually contradicts the world's. His way of living, His way of, uh, of leading us contradicts the way of the world. And if you want to live for God, you must be ready to say and do what seems strange to the world. If people look at you kind of strangely as a Christian, you might be doing all right because they probably don't understand some things, but then your, your goal, your chore is to help them understand where you're at. Don't just leave them confused and cross-eyed and wondering what in the world did that person just say or do. We do need to be different, but we need to let people know why there's a difference and, uh, and help them understand in that way. You must be willing, though, to give, give when others take, to love when others hate, to help when others abuse. And by giving up your own rights to order, in order to serve others, you will one day receive everything God has in store for you as this portion of Scripture lays out. And the word beatitude isn't found in your Bible. If you're going to look for that, it's really not there. Um, 
but simply it means a blessing and, and it comes from the Latin word blessed. And if, it, we find it in almost every verse here. And it tells us that the presence of these qualities in our lives will enrich us and sustain us. We'll be blessed. We do these things. And these verses deal with attitudes, what we think in our hearts, our outlook on life, the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be in our lives if we are true Christians. So during the summer series of messages, we will consider the word be attitude, as it shows there in your bulletin, the front page there, be attitude, because that reminds us that these words are something that Jesus wants us to be. We need to be these things. They are, they are a set of qualities and ways of living which, which come out of a life which desires to see Jesus and not the culture as king. Jesus needs to be king. Jesus needs to be on the throne of our lives and not the culture on the throne. And each beatitude tells how to be blessed by God. And blessed means more than happiness. It implies the desirable position of those who are in God's kingdom. The Beatitudes don't promise laughter or pleasure or earthly prosperity. Being blessed by God means the experience of hope and of joy and is independent of circumstances around us. So during the last couple of years, I trust that you were still experiencing hope and experiencing joy because those were circumstances that were happening. The pandemic circumstances happening around us. They obviously did not make us happy, obviously made it very difficult. But I trust that, that you were able still to focus in and experience God's hope and His joy in our lives. Because when that happens, then we are connected and we realize we're connected more with God. And, and of course, the, the, the blesseds, the, the beatitudes that He lists here, we are fixed upon God and what He has for us and not focused on those things around us. Too many times we get, we get confused <laughs> and we get distracted by what's going on around us and we need to refocus and get back on track. These Beatitudes come out of a heart which is seeking to follow God despite any opposition from today's culture. And there's a lot of things in today's culture that's trying to come against uh, our walk as a Christian. But they are also, these Beatitudes are a two-way street, if you, if you think about it. If we strive to practice them, we will understand more the deepness and the difference of a life lived with Jesus as King. If we live our life for Jesus, we will develop these qualities more and more in our day-to-day -day living. So it's a two-way street. We start one and we'll go the other way. It's a two-way street in this. And as we look at each of these Beatitudes this summer, it might help us to understand that there are at least four ways to grasp them. Four ways. Uh, first way, or one way, is that they are a code of ethics for the disciples and a standard of conduct for all believers. So we see these, these different Beatitudes, and we look at that, and we go, okay, the disciples followed this as their code of ethic. But then we also look at that, and we say this can be the standard of conduct among us as well, too. Another way of being able to understand these or to grasp these uh, Beatitudes is that they contrast kingdom values, what is eternal, with worldly values, what is temporary. You'll see that throughout this uh, portion of Scripture as well, too. 
another uh, way to grasp the, these Beatitudes is that they contrast the, the superficial faith of the Pharisees with the real faith that Christ demands. So you'll see that play out a little bit as well, too. And then finally, of course, they show how the Old Testament expectations will be fulfilled in the new kingdom. These Beatitudes are not multiple choice. <laughs> They're not pick what you like and leave the rest. They must be taken as a whole. They describe what we should be like as Christ's followers. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to take a very close look at each of these principles, each of these Beatitudes on their own, and how Jesus modeled them for us. For now, I want to give a, a little introduction to this portion of Scripture by way of an overview of these verses, and then we'll get back into them deeper as the, the, the Sundays come our way. So look with me in Matthew chapter 5, the first two verses there. It says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So enormous crowds were following Jesus. He, he was the talk of the town, and everyone wanted to see him. And the disciples, who were the closest associates of this, this popular man, were certainly tempted to feel important and proud and possessive as well. Because everyone wanted to see Jesus, and they were part of uh, following Jesus. They're like, well, look at us. <laughs> we, we're important too, just like him, right? And being with Jesus gave them not only prestige, but also opportunity for receiving money and power. The crowds were gathering once again, but before speaking to them, Jesus pulled His disciples aside, and He warned them about the temptations they would face as they associated with Him. Don't expect fame and fortune, Jesus was saying, but mourning and hunger, persecution, not a real selling point if you're going to follow Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus assured His disciples that they would be rewarded, but maybe not in this life. And as the Beatitudes are introduced to us, we read that Jesus taught them to His disciples while on a mountainside. Now, much attention has been given to these two, two details. The, the term disciple can be interpreted to mean anything from, from the big 12 to the growing group of close followers to the large crowds that gathered around Jesus. And the term mountain leads some to wonder if, if the location was a special place somewhere, kind of like what, what Mount Sinai was for uh, those who, who hear, heard God declare those, uh, those laws a thousand years uh, earlier. But in reality, neither detail, the mountain, the people, <laughs> just happened to, neither of those details make much of an impact on how we understand this portion of Scripture. We can look at that and we, we can understand, okay, there might be some questions, but we go through that and kind of gives more of the setting here. The Beatitudes are calling, the, calling us to live differently than the world around us. That's the important message out of these portion, this portion of Scripture. And that mountain just happened to be the place he was at. <laughs> A mountainside in the area of Galilee, one of the poorest regions of Judah. If he'd been in the grove of fig trees, I'm sure this would have been the sermon among the fig trees, <laughs> or maybe the sermon among the grove, um, but it's just the location there. And these first two verses, again, are meant to locate the message within a, a time and space. Here's where it was, this is what was happening, when it was happening. 
And because the writer was recording these words for the benefit of those like us who didn't get to hear them firsthand. So once this is established, we move into the heart of Jesus' words in verses 3 through 10. And there is a progression here, and we'll follow this here real briefly. And like I said, just kind of overview of these Beatitudes, and we'll get into them more uh, deeply as we go on. But they start with a, a, a deeply personal, personal issue, those issues in a personal way, and mo- move mo- outward to how we live in this world. So it starts deeply personal to living in this world. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You look at that that phrase, poor in spirit, and basically it's speaking of our attitude toward ourselves in which we feel our need and admit it. We are poor in spirit. In a world where we are expected to be self-confident, we're supposed to be competent and and self-reliant, Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit. He means that we should live with an understanding of how much we need Him and how and of how helpless we are without Him. And those of you can give testimony about that. You realize what you were like before you met Christ, and because and, these days you rely upon Christ tremendously. And you look back on the days you did not know Christ, and you, you think, how could I have handled those difficult times without Him? I would have been lost. I was lost. <laughs> and so you realize that, and you understand how you are, poor in spirit, and you need Jesus in your life. And this, this poor in spirit thing is not, the call, is not a call to hate ourselves. That would be directly contrary to the fact that we are made in the image of God Himself. So no self-deprecation is allowed in these things. And it means that we need to appreciate and take to heart the fact that without Jesus, all of our potential all of our achievements, all of our self-esteem and our our abilities amount to nothing more than a temporary distraction from an eternity of separation from anything of any value at all. We all live understanding our need for food. We all live for a need for, for water and shelter, all these basic things clothing as well. We, do not, we, we don't generate these things within us. We seek them from outside sources. And acknowledging our need for these things is part of a normal life. What Jesus is saying is that we must also see our need to acknowledge our inerrant lack of goodness and see our sinfulness. We are to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to establish. We need Jesus. <laughs> we can't do it on our own. We don't solve the problem of our sinfulness from within. We can't just make things better. We can't just be a better person. We come to Jesus and express our need for Him to do this. That's why each Sunday after a message, if there's a need there you have, you can come to the front of the church and you can pray. You can't do it on your own. I hope there's moments in your life where you've realized that and you're learning that along the way because I'm sure... There are moments also, too, where you're going, well, I could take care of that. And then you go, whoops, I guess I couldn't. But you learn from it. And you go back to Jesus and you go, you know what? I couldn't do that on my own. I need you in my life. I need you to help me in this area of my life, whatever it was that you're struggling with. We need Jesus in that way. We, we can't do it on our own. If we're not ready to express our need for Him, 
and heaven remains an unreachable place. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now that word mourn basically speaks to our attitude towards sin and, and, and a true sorrow for sin. There's a book about the Coca-Cola company a few, few years ago. In it, the writer estim, uh, estimated that as, a, as of the late 1980s, almost one billion servings of Coke were being consumed daily around the world. That's amazing. One billion. Now, I don't know how many uh, Diet Cokes some of you have done down. And yet, there's Chris's birthday Diet Coke right there probably. But you may have done your share for that. But apparently, that number is now up to over one billion a day, and a lot of those are consumed uh, probably within your household. Maybe, maybe going, hmm, I shouldn't have done that, <laughs> but that happens. We are a pleasure-seeking people. We seek after pleasure. It's part of our nature to seek what feels good. It just happens. And when this impulse is controlled by God's law and, and His principles, working in our hearts, it is a good and enjoyable part of who we are. It, it, it's a good thing. God made us to enjoy pleasure. But it's all too easy to be consumed by this drive for pleasure. And not just for pleasure's sake, sometimes people seek comfort from their pain within an excess of pleasure. Jesus tells us that we, we find comfort from our hurts by facing them and mourning, expressing the hurt within us. And then that's when the church comes into play, the body of Christ. When one person mourns, we all mourn. One person rejoices, we all rejoice. We work together, coming together, helping each other. We must also be ready to face the wrong within us, not just the hurts, but, but the actual sin that resides in us, and be willing to mourn over it. Sin and hurt are two very different things, but we try to ignore both by diving into pleasure and covering it up in that way. We do this at our own peril. But Jesus came to help us face the harsh world we live in and not cover it up or, or ignore it. He helps us to actually feel sorrow when we do wrong. So the Holy Spirit comes into play and prompts you, taps you on the shoulder and says, that wasn't right. Yeah, you shouldn't be doing those things. You should be doing this. And when we feel the promises of the Holy Spirit, then, then our conscience should play into that as well too. When that all comes together, there should be the godly sorrow that is spoken of in Scripture. But He, ha he helps us to actually feel that sorrow when we do wrong. Not try to hide it. Not try to deflect it. Not try to ignore it. And he will get us through our hard times, but we have to be willing to face the source of our hurts and our sin first. When we're willing to do that, then comes the healing. When we do these things, comfort comes as Christ helps us through them. Then in verse 5, we have, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now that word meek speaks to our attitude toward others. Uh, we need to be teachable. We don't uh, defend ourselves when we are wrong. Now, that's kind of hard for some of us. We want to speak up if we've been wronged. And, hey, you know, let, them, let them have a, a thing or two uh, from my mouth so they know what's going on. And I'm going to share them some thoughts that they didn't think of and they don't even know about. You defend yourself when you feel wronged. Well, meekness 
doesn't go that route. There's pride, though, and there's power, and there's popularity. These are the three P's of getting ahead. Moving forward, all three put their subject in the middle and everyone else in a supporting role. Jesus says, get into the supporting role and out of the middle. Meekness is a servant heart, a willingness to put others first. It's not becoming a doormat to be walked on. It's becoming a door opener to be walked with. It's not keeping your mouth shut in the presence of differing opinions. It's helping others have their say before we have ours. It's simply seeing ourselves as people who are ready to serve others. Then you look at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That, that phrase, hunger and thirst. <laughs> now here our attitude toward God is expressed. We receive His righteousness by faith because we ask for it. We yearn for it. We want it. We desire it. The terms satisfied, well-adjusted, practical are all compliments to most of us. <laughs> and so they should be. And, and as far as I understand the terms, being satisfied means not wanting any more than what we have. Uh, being well-adjusted means that we have adapted well to whatever is around us. And being practical means that we're quite useful in our own resources. Applied to most areas of life, these are good qualities. But if we look at it, uh, at our spiritual fitness, and say, I'm satisfied, or say, I'm good enough, or say, uh, I, I, I've done practical things to get me there, we're walking down the wrong path. If we've allowed our minds to become well-adjusted or comfortable to the sin around us, then we need to get out of the comfort zone we've wandered into. And if we rely on our own resources for our spiritual nurture, we're not very practical at all, actually. <laughs> Jesus is saying our desire to grow in righteousness should be as strong as our desire to eat and drink. I'm sure most of you had your breakfast this morning, whatever form it might have been. If you didn't, I'm sure most of you will be having something to eat if you didn't eat something this morning. We make sure that our bodies are taken care of that way. Our stomach lets us know when it's time to eat again. Or we feel thirsty and we got to get that drink of water. We just got to get our body satisfied. We are, we are in tune with that. Jesus is saying our desire to grow in righteousness should be as strong as our desire to eat and drink. Aside from breathing, these two instincts are probably the most powerful in our bodies. So if Jesus uses them as examples, we must be making, He must be making a very strong point here. And that point is that we should crave spiritual food just like we do physical food. So, I trust that you're able to feed your soul just as much as you're feeding your body. And I trust that you're not uh, starving yourself spiritually. Maybe the next time you feel hungry, maybe spend some time in God's Word before you eat that next meal. <laughs> so you're feeding yourself spiritually as well as you are physically. These first four qualities here in the Beatitudes up to verse 6, being poor in spirit, facing sorrow, being meek, and craving righteousness, 
all point to the inner self. Seeing ourselves for who we really are. People in need of forgiveness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Feeling sorrow not only for what hurts us, but also for the sin within us. Blessed are those who mourn. To see ourselves as servants to those around us. Blessed are the meek. Seeking God's righteousness like we seek the very basics of life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus' words now turn us to how we live among others. And he starts with showing compassion for those in need. Look at verse 7. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, that, that word merciful means that we have a forgiving spirit. We love others. The phrase, able to take care of themselves, is one of those phrases that is quite popular, isn't it? Take, for example, how we give aid to people in need. The principle that governs many of our attempts to help others is, is, is found in this, this cliche. Maybe you've heard of it. Give a man a fish, and he will be back tomorrow. Teach a man to fish, and he will take care of himself. Take care of himself. And there's merit in this approach, of course. Many times I've wanted to uh, help others who ask, uh, teach, teach others how to fish when they've asked me some um, uh, computer uh, questions or internet questions or whatever, because if I, I'm always the person, oh, this is where you go. Okay, good. Next time, where do I go? This is where you go. Okay. want to make sure they know how to go there, so I teach them how to fish. And that's good. You, you need to do that. But we must never allow it to stifle our simpler calling, which is to just help people where they are with what they need. Jesus helped lame people walk again, which would obviously help them help themselves. But he also fed 5,000 people who were very able to go feed themselves. He cleansed 10 lepers, with the result being that they could live life for themselves. But he also made wine at a wedding where everybody had already consumed what was provided. So this is not legalism, but simply the working of the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. If we, if we show mercy... Because Christ has been merciful to us, the mercy will come back to us. We don't earn mercy, but we must have hearts prepared to receive it. Then in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And that phrase, pure in heart, basically keeping our lives clean. That holiness is happiness to us, and we want no substitutes. Being pure in heart doesn't mean being perfect. Don't go there. <laughs> it means being focused. No one will leave this earth saying, I was perfect. <laughs> but we can leave this earth saying, I was God's own. He owned me. In a world that demands we, we accept all the different ways to God, and they show there are different pathways, that everyone can reach God in their own way, we are called to stand on the reality that there is just one way, and that's Jesus Christ. We are to show the world that we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to be our guide to God. We need our instincts, our traditions, our upbringing, our schools, our governments. We need all these things and all the other institutions that guide us through life. We need those things. But when it comes to pointing the way to God, all these and everything else must bow before the one way to God, His Son, Jesus Christ. When we take this stand, we will see God. And then verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
And that word peacemakers means that Christians should bring peace. (laughs) Peace between people and God and between those who are at, at odds with each other. We share the gospel of peace. In a world which encourages us to be competitive, to be aggressive, to achieve great things, Jesus calls us to seek peace in our relationships. Jesus Jesus came to bring peace, to restore the relationship between man and God. And when we seek to bring peace and restore relationships, we are following His example, being the peacemakers. And peace doesn't mean there is no conflict. You don't get rid of conflict, but you're there to bring peace amidst the conflict. There will still be differences of opinion, big and small. But it does mean the relationship is restored and whole again as a peacemaker. Peacemakers serving in the name of Jesus will strive to restore connections that have been broken by sin. Jesus restores us to God by doing this, and He calls us to strive to do the same sort of thing on the level we operate at and in the relationship relationships we are in. When we come among others in our lives, we need to be that peacemaker. And in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted. Now there's a fun little word, isn't it? All who live godly lives will suffer persecution. You just got to bank on it. It's going to happen. How many times have you heard the phrase, don't rock the boat, don't make any waves, play it cool? One person who never said it or hinted at it was Jesus. (laughs) He never abided by that. Each of these verses contradicts the world's common way of doing things and replaces it with Jesus' way. He is definitely rocking the boat. (laughs) He's rocked the boat a number of times among the Pharisees and Sadducees as you read through Scripture. He knew that living His way, the way that He is calling us to, would bring hardship on His people. Doing things Jesus' way has never been hugely popular. Just try it these days and see how many people really agree with you. But look at where it got Jesus 33 years after He was born. The world was always, has always appreciated parts of what Jesus said and did. If you talk to, talk to somebody about Jesus, though, yeah, he was a good man. He had a lot of good teaching. They appreciate what he said. This is why he gets called a great teacher, a great prophet, an enlightened man, and a lot of other nice things. But when, we, when the world was confronted with the full package 2,000 years ago, it tried to snuff it out as fast as it could. The world does not like being told it's wrong. And it will turn on the person who dares to rock the boat. So you can be sure aware that uh, you, once you follow Jesus and you're going to be living a godly life, people will turn on you as well too because you're rocking the boat. So Jesus expands on this last point in the next two verses, verses 11 and 12. He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, 
because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world will not stand up and applaud our efforts to follow Jesus. They don't. But Jesus will not let our efforts be in vain. He stands by His people when they strive to be more like Him. Jesus said to rejoice when we're persecuted for our faith. And persecution can be good because it takes our eyes off earthly rewards. Helps us see Jesus a little clearer. It strips away superficial belief. When you are in difficult times and persecution comes, all you have is your faith. My goodness, it becomes pretty strong. It strengthens the faith of those who endure, and our attitude through it serves as an example to others who follow. And we can be comforted that God's greatest prophets were persecuted. Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel. The fact that we are being persecuted proves that we have been faithful. And it's the faithless people who are, who are unnoticed. <laughs> And in the future, God will reward the faithful by receiving them into His eternal kingdom where there is no more persecution. So to wrap up here our time as far as this overview, these words are both our calling and our greatest goals. To walk away from pride and confess our need for Christ. To face sorrow with Christ at our side. To serve others as Christ serves us to crave righteousness more than our basic needs, to lend a hand when others are in need, to remain focused on the true Savior in a world of counterfeit messiahs, to bring harmony to broken relationships, and to accept that the world will not stand up and applaud as we serve Christ. There's probably one that stands out for you more than the others here as, you, as you've heard these things, and maybe through this summer. You'll focus in on maybe one more than the other. It will hit you a little bit more. And, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to you about those things through the summer as we visit these Beatitudes. But because there's one that might stand out more for you than others, when we listen, Jesus speaks to our hearts. When that stands out more than others, listen carefully because Jesus has something for you this summer and shows us our greatest need for Him. So as we look to these Beatitudes in the coming weeks and through the summertime, ask Jesus to keep speaking and hand over to Him what He's asking for. What is it that He might be asking for in your life? Be ready to be obedient to whatever He has for you this summer, and I trust that as we journey through this series, it will be wonderfully rich for you in your spiritual walk with Christ. We have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in the last couple songs. And as we uh, sing these songs, this first one just reminds us again of God's love for us. And be reminded that through the, this, this summer of, of messages, that God loves you greatly. And He wants the best for you. So if you, some Sunday through this summer, get, we get to one of the Beatitudes, if you feel a little convicted... Just know that God loves you so much. He wants to change you and bring you closer to Himself. So be ready for that. Be ready for that as we go through this summer.